Also, as we enter into the new season of the year, it is time to rethinking our small group ministry and another semester of small groups that are about to kick off. And listen, if you are feeling a stirring that maybe you'd like to open your home to a small group, to host one, or perhaps you yourself would like to lead one, then this Wednesday night there is a meeting with Pastor Bob Banks who's overseeing our small group ministry. He would love to meet with you. That meeting is at 6.30. It's off-site. You can find out more information online or call the church office. That's this Wednesday. And again, if God is stirring you to host or lead or even just be involved in that small group ministry, um, I would encourage you to take advantage of that meeting this Wednesday night. I just came up from Sandy Cove where we have uh, over 250 of our men down there. Amen. I see the women applauding. Now, that could be a mixed message. No, I know what the heart was there. So they are, listen, amazing things happening. It's really cool for me to be able to bring part of that back up here with me. If you haven't been with us for a while, or maybe you're just joining us for the first time, we are in the middle of a five-part series on the necessary ingredients of life. And you can see those ingredients behind me. Um, This morning, we come to the ingredient of resiliency. And I'm just excited that our guest teacher here this morning, um, as well as the guest teachers that we had down at Sandy Cove over the weekend, um, really have, God has been taking them on this resiliency path. And you're going to hear some of that story this morning. Bill Butterworth has become a good friend of our ministry here at Calvary Chapel. He's traveled all the way from sunny Southern California into our Northeast winter um, to be with us. And Bill has a great story of resiliency. And he's, he's put some of that story, if I'm not mistaken, Bill, that's what the book you have out in the, in the atrium this morning. There's a book table out there. He's going to be out there after the service. He'd love to meet you. He's a Philly guy. He loves to talk to Philly people. Would you please give Bill a warm welcome as he comes to the stage? Thanks, Steve. Bless you, brother. Yes, it's good to be back. Good morning. I'm so glad it was this Sunday and not last Sunday that uh, the flight from California made its way here. And uh, Kathy and I are delighted to be with you and especially to talk about this whole idea of resiliency. Uh, There are five grown children in the Butterworth family, a daughter and four sons. They're all Jays, Joy, Jesse, Jeffrey, John, and Joseph. And we had this remarkably creative idea when we launched our final child out into the college years. Uh, Kathy and I sold the big house and bought a small one. And we felt that the downsizing made a very positive message in terms of our children's adulthood because there was actually no place to ever come back to if adulthood didn't work out. And so they've been, uh, you know, slugging it out for years now and they seem to be doing quite well. But when we moved, um, we moved from our big house in California to a smaller place and the smaller place actually happened to be a little closer to the beach. And I started noticing that every morning all these people would get up and they would jog on the beach. Well, I'm as athletic as a doorknob, and yet I know I'm supposed to try to take care of myself. And and for some ridiculous reason, jogging on the beach looked like a really uh, inviting activity that was fun, and it would look like something out of a movie, and most significantly and incorrectly, it looked easy. And so I thought, well, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start jogging on the beach. 
So I was telling everybody that I'm running on the beach, and that was really a lie because I was actually walking on the beach, and I wasn't even walking. There was just sort of ambulatory movement very slowly on the sand. But I, I was making progress, and I started to work up to where I could actually do a, a, an actual run. And uh, I know you're all very familiar with Newport Beach, so I would run all the way down to the Newport Pier, and I'd kick the pilings, and I'd turn around, and I'd start running back. And I could only run for so long until, you know, my, my lungs started to feel like they were going to explode, and my thighs were screaming, and it was just a horrible thing. And coincidentally, it seemed to come on me at the exact same spot every day that I ran. Uh, the city erected a monument to my pain. They put a lifeguard stand right where uh, I would always have this problem. And, and in uh, Newport Beach, they put the street signs on the side of the lifeguard stands. It was the 44th Street lifeguard stand. I'd see these two fours coming up on me, and I knew that there would be a problem. And runners all deal with this, and there's a little quaint expression that they have when they hit the 44th Street lifeguard stand. It's called hitting the wall. And hitting the wall is one of the most painful things that a runner can experience. And me being brave and bold and courageous, I would just stop dead and take the rest of my journey as a walk. And that felt so defeatist to me, and I, I was embarrassed that I couldn't run the whole way. Well, obviously, I'm not going to leave a story like that at that point because there's a, there's a wonderful happy ending to this story that, again, runners will know. There is a phenomenon that medical doctors can't even completely explain. I've tried to get somebody to help me understand this. But there is a time when you'll do your normal run, you'll kick the pier, uh, the piling at Newport Pier, you'll turn around and you'll run, and you will hit the wall at the 44th Street lifeguard stand. But one particular day... Hitting the wall somehow energizes you and gives you a boost, a, a second wind is what they call it, so that you can run through that pain and actually complete your race. They've, they've charted this out with marathoners, the 26 plus miles. Most runners hit the wall, mile 20 or mile 21. But those that finish, finish because they run through the pain and get this second wind. Well, I was so excited. I went home and told my wife and called the kids and said, this is amazing. I've had this amazing experience. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized what a wonderful metaphor for our lives. And especially this concept that we want to unpack this morning, this whole idea of resiliency. That if you're like me, you've had plenty of walls in your life already. And maybe you're up against one at this very moment. And they can be the standard ones that everybody talks about, like, you know, you went to the doctor and got a really serious medical report. Maybe that's the wall in your life. Maybe it's a financial hardship where, you know, you are not making enough money to cover your monthly nut and you don't know what you're going to do or you're, you're gradually spending all your retirement and all of a sudden you realize, I've hit a wall financially. Or maybe it's relationally. You were so happy for so long and now all you do is ying, 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 ying at each other. And it's a wall in your life. Or that, that child who was once so kind and loving, he's just, he's ugly. He just says bad things. And I don't understand. There, there's a relational wall in your life. 
Or maybe it's something very, very personal. Maybe you're dealing with discouragement that's led to depression. I mean, you can hardly get out of bed in the morning because you're so concerned about how life isn't working out like you thought it would. Or you're filled with regret. Or you just focus on your failures. Or you become cynical. Or you don't want to be in a small group. You want to isolate yourself. You want to be all by yourself. That's a wall in your life. Or you're afraid or you're anxious or you're angry or you're confused. Or maybe life has just lost its zip. I mean, there's, there's no fun in life anymore. And, and you don't dream anymore because dreams never come true. Or you just kind of lost your hope. Well, we all need a dose of resiliency to understand that we can get through, that, that life isn't done. Um, along with my speaking, the other arm of the ministry that I have uh, thoroughly enjoyed over all these years is the ministry of writing. And not only writing books for myself, but helping other people write books. I'm a ghostwriter, the, thus the chalky complexion. But as I, as I help other people tell their story, I realize we all have a story as we sp- spell out the chapters of our lives. And nobody is on the last chapter quite yet. We all have the potential of a new adventure, a new beginning, a second wind in our lives that might be right around the corner. And so God is simply saying, hang in, be resilient, be tough, just endure a little bit longer and perhaps a door will open that will take you to a new area of life. It could be written off as pop psychology, could sound like an Oprah special, but it's way beyond that. It's it's exquisitely biblical. You look at the characters in the Old and the New Testaments and you see these stories unfolded chapter by chapter as you discover lives of men and women in the scripture who were waiting for this second wind to occur in their life and God opened a door and all of a sudden a new adventure awaited. I want to take our time this morning and walk you through one of the most famous characters in Scripture so that you can see chapter by chapter the phases, the seasons, the chapters in this man's life so that you and I can be encouraged by the fact that through my resiliency, God can open a door and take me someplace I've never been before. It's the world-famous Old Testament character, Moses, okay? So to look at the life of Moses, I basically thought of a couple ways we could do it. One is, I could ask you to all pay attention while I read to you out loud the first five books of the Old Testament. I'm told that that might not fit into the time parameters uh, that we have here this morning. So what we need is kind of a summary. What we need is, if I may be so bold, if you can remember these, we need a Cliff Notes version of Moses' life. Now, who's going to be honest and admit, along with me, that you used Cliff Notes in order to do a book report somewhere in school? Yeah, okay, good. We got some honest people. I mean, I did. I mean, what, what, why am I being assigned little women anyway? <laughs> so Cliff Notes summarizes it for us. And then we can kind of get the main stuff and continue on. Well, in the New Testament, there is a wonderful summary of the life of Moses. There's actually a wonderful summary of the entire Old Testament. It's in the book of Acts. 
in the seventh chapter. And I invite you to turn with me if you have your Bibles with you. Acts chapter 7. Now, this is a, um, an inquisition, if you will. This is the, the trial of uh, Stephen in front of the Sanhedrin. And he is offering, once he finally gets a chance to defend himself, Stephen's defense in front of the Sanhedrin is essentially a summary of the entire Old Testament. It's a beautiful message to study, not only in its content, but it's in its communicative style. And so uh, we see Stephen unwrapping all these portions of the Old Testament, but we want to draw our attention this morning from verses 20 down to verse 37, which include the full life of Moses that we want to look at today. Now, let me be very, very clear, and I'll be redundant throughout the morning, because there's something I really want you to get And I don't want you to misunderstand and go off in a different direction. If I am trying to communicate one thing for us to grasp this morning, it is that all of us, every person in this room, whether you're standing or seated, wherever you are, every one of us has a life story that's being unfolded chapter by chapter. We're going to look at Moses' life chapter by chapter. I am not trying to say that if your life doesn't look like Moses, you got a problem. Your life may unfold very differently than Moses. But what I'm trying to say is nobody's had their last chapter written yet. And that resiliency can lead to this wonderful second wind of a new adventure in your life. Chapter one in Moses' life is what I would call a good start. Okay, if you're a note taker, you're desperately looking for something to write down, write that down. A good start. It's verses 20 through 22. It says, it was at this time that Moses was born and he was lovely in the sight of God and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been exposed, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. And Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. He was a man of power in words and deeds. Now, I give chapter 1 the name A Good Start uh, advisedly. Because, again, if you really know the story of Moses, you know that there's some real pain involved in the early stages of Moses' life. Most significantly, his biological mom and dad essentially have to put him up for adoption. You may know that pain personally or through extended family or friends. There's nothing really easy or simple about releasing a child for adoption. So how could I possibly call this a good start? Well, it's because the the contrast, the other option, if Moses had not been adopted, Moses would have been murdered. Pharaoh was very anti-Hebrew at the time, so anti-Hebrew, he was killing Hebrew babies. So Moses' parents, a wonderful godly couple named Amram and Jochebed, had the option of either we, you know, release our child with this amazing adventure, or we sit by and watch him be killed. So they came up with this idea, look, You know what? There is a point 
in the, in the river where all the Egyptian women go to gather water for the day or wash the clothes or do this, gather them in the pots. What if we put Moses in a little basket and just kind of let him sit there and maybe an Egyptian woman will look kindly upon this baby and take him in as her own. And that's exactly what happened. And you want to talk about a good start. Not only did a woman take in baby Moses, but it wasn't just any woman. It was Pharaoh's daughter. I mean, all politics aside for a second, this is the modern day equivalent of, I know you have to put your baby up for adoption, but the White House is interested. I mean, think of the educational advantage. Think of the cultural opportunities that your baby would have because he or she would now grow up in the White House. I mean, what an amazing thing. So Pharaoh's daughter takes in Moses, and that's why we see that I believe it's a very good time. He's a man of power in words and deeds. Some of us have an identical or similar chapter one. We have a good start. We had a godly mom and dad who really loved us and brought us up in a good way. There's very few of us in the American culture, I believe, these days because it's become much more in vogue to all agree that we've all been brought up in dysfunction. It's just how dysfunctional was your home? What kind of abuse did you take? You know, what, what you know, pain did you endure? And I don't mean to minimize anyone's pain or dysfunction. It just seems like it's become kind of cliche that you can't find anybody that was brought up well anymore. Everybody's always focusing on dysfunction, all right? So maybe you didn't have a good start. Maybe you don't even know who your parents were. Or maybe it was a, it was a home where there was lots of pain and lots of abuse and lots of heartache. But there are some of us who can say, you know what, I really had a good, a good childhood. My first chapter really is a good start. If that's the case, you may also identify with chapter two in Moses' life, which is what I call a bad turn. A bad turn. Verses 23 through 29. When he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. We'll stop right there. The story is, is just right out of a movie plot, all right? Moses has grown up as an Egyptian and he's wonderful and he's you know educated and he's got all this going for him but he's he's a man who harbors a secret and his secret is I'm really a Hebrew but nobody knows and he'd see his Hebrew brothers throughout the kingdom and he'd say boy you know someday I'd really like to kind of you know buddy up with them I mean we're bros I mean we we're we're all out of the same family here and he never did find quite the right time until one night if I can just make it even more movie-like, there's a little bit of a, of a fist fight going on in a back alley, all right? And Moses sees who's fist fighting. It's an Egyptian fighting a Hebrew. And Moses thinks to himself, this is my moment. I am going to thoroughly reveal that I'm a Hebrew because I'm going to enter this fist fight and I'm going to join the Hebrew wailing on the Egyptian. 
And that's exactly what he does. And he's extraordinarily effective in this fist fight. How effective? He makes sure the Egyptian will not fight again. He kills him. So if anybody's unclear about Moses, you know, did he ever have kind of a rough spot? Yeah, he did. Did he sin? Yeah. What was the sin? Murder. Moses? I mean, if you're my age, you're still seeing Charlton Heston, you know, you know, with the staff and the rifle. And I mean, Big Chuck. I mean, it's amazing. You know, But Moses murdered the Egyptian. The text says, well, at least my Hebrew brethren will understand. And of course, if you read on in the text, you find out they didn't. They completely misunderstood. They said things like, who died and made you king? What do you, you know, if we ever get you alone in an alley, we're going to do the same thing to you. And, and the text goes on to say that Moses fled for his life. So look at that chapter. There's sin. There's misunderstanding. There's guilt. There's fear. Anybody have a chapter like that in your life? You don't have to raise your hand. But look how it went. A good start led to, well, then I went off to college. And I got all wacky, wacky in college. I wasn't thinking straight. And, you know, it, it just before I knew it, I was in all kinds of trouble. Or, hey, I got through college, but it was that first business venture turned me all upside down. Or, oh, you know, I was young and didn't know any better and got involved with somebody and, oh, that was a mess. And, you know, it just, it was short-lived, but it, it left its scars. Everybody's got their bad turn chapter, right? Chapter one with Moses is a good start. Chapter two with Moses is the bad turn. So bad that he runs for his life. And when we take up the story again, we get to chapter three, which I would call on the shelf, on the shelf. And it takes place in verses 29 and 30. It follows the verse that essentially says, if we ever catch you by yourself, we're going to beat you up. So Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. And after 40 years had passed, and I want to stop right there. Moses ran for his life to a foreign land, thus the word alien. He went to Midian, met a girl, married her, went to work for her father. Her father was a shepherd, someone who had sheep. Now, I don't know where you fall on this issue, but lots of times we see shepherds in the Bible in kind of a romanticized kind of thing. It's the Christmas story and oh, the sweet little shepherds and I bet the sheep smelled like, you know, aftershave cologne and, you know, no one did anything weird. It was just, you know, it, it was not real high class kind of work, okay? And Moses isn't even the shepherd. He works for the shepherd. He's essentially a sheep babysitter. A sheep babysitter for, you'll see in verse 30, 40 years. Now you want to talk about feeling like, you know, my life is at a place where I've just kind of hit the wall. It's like a dry spell. 
I'm not experiencing joy and fulfillment and, you know, I got more problems than I've got blessings and, you know, it's just, it's just blah. That's what Moses dealt with for 40 years. Whenever I read this, I think of when my kids were still at home, they had this expression that they loved to use about their boring dad. Dad, your life is same old, same old, same old. And I'd say, man, you know, first of all, you have no idea what you're talking about because it was your grandparents whose life was same old, same old, same old. I mean, I can still remember growing up here in Philadelphia, my dad, if you ever played Monopoly, he worked for the Reading Railroad on the Monopoly board, remember? And he would, he would get up every morning, every day I knew my dad. He got up the same time every morning, had the same breakfast every morning I knew him. Cup of black coffee, bowl of cornflakes. Every day, cup of black coffee, bowl of cornflakes. Little bran with the cornflakes later in life, but essentially, cup of black coffee, bowl of cornflakes. He left for work at the same time. He came back the same time. Philadelphia Inquirer folded the same way, tucked under the same arm. He had the same smell every night when he came home from working at the railroad. I mean, it was just amazing. In God's grace, he met my mother, the queen of same old, same old. <laughs> Say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, here's a bizarre way to describe it, but stay with me. If I were suddenly abducted by aliens and taken to a foreign planet and then returned again without any idea of time, date, or calendar, if you could take me to my mother's, by dinner time I could tell you at least what day of the week it is because my mother cooked the same meal on the same day of the week every day that I knew her. Anybody grow up in a home like that? You know, Monday was spaghetti, Tuesday was baked chicken, Wednesday was meatloaf. I hated my mother's meatloaf, by the way. Part of it was I don't really care for ketchup and she used to just slather the meatloaf with ketchup. And I'd say, Mom, I just don't like your meatloaf. And she'd say, well, then here, let me put more ketchup on it. <laughs> I mean, how twisted is that? Talk about dysfunction. Thank goodness for Thursday, macaroni and cheese. Friday was fish sticks. Saturday was hot dogs. Sunday was a roast beef. And then Monday, we're back to spaghetti again. Same old, same old, same old. I tell that to my kids and they say, but dad, remember when we were in high school and you were packing lunches for us? It was the same lunch every day. Peanut butter jelly sandwich, piece of fruit, juice box. I mean, dad, we couldn't even sell this lunch on the black market at the high school. You know, throw me a bone here, big guy. Same old, same old, same old. And perhaps there are some of us today in this room that say, you know what? Maybe it's not quite that same old, same old or quite that boring, but I am kind of in a chapter in my life where I'm asking myself, is this the way it's going to be? Is this how it is? I mean, I, it, it, it's, it's, it's not going anywhere. It's just kind of, who cares? You know, I'm ready to kind of throw up my hands and say, what, what difference does it make? Moses lived with that for 40 years. You can play all the games you want with times and calendars in the Bible, but 40 years meant 40 years. 40 years of, what are you going to do today, Moses? Well, I'm going to let the sheep out. I'm going to watch them there until about lunchtime. Then lunchtime, I'm going to get my brown bag out. I got a peanut butter jelly and a piece of fruit and fruit box, and uh, I'm going to save the brown bag. I'll use that again tomorrow. And then uh, when it gets dark, I'm going to let the sheep back in and go back, have a little dinner, read the Jerusalem Post, do the crossword. Go to sleep. 
good. What's the next day look like? Well, I'm going to get up, let the sheep out. You know, about lunchtime, I'm going to have a peanut butter and jelly, a piece of fruit, fruit box. Same old, same old, same old. And then something big happened. Chapter 4, verses 30 through 35. It's what I call the second wind. Verses 30 through 35, the second wind. You know it by its more common description, the burning bush. The burning bush. Verses 30 through 35, you read it. It's a fresh encounter with God. God says, Moses, I want to get your attention, so I'm going to provide something miraculous. Matter of fact, it's like a railroad track. There's a double rail of miracle that is unexplainable. The first is, you have a bush that is on fire that will not completely burn up. Now, now some of you have been to the Holy Land. You've been on the, uh, the, the Israel tour, and you've seen a bush in the wilderness. It's dry. It looks like if you lit a match, it would go up and consume instantaneously this thing was on fire and would not burn up and if that's not miraculous enough there's the second rail it talks a bush talks yeah Moses get over here in Hebrew of course bilingual bush maybe it did speak in English I don't know but yeah and God says I have big things for you I have a A second wind. You have been resilient through all these years. I have a new chapter for you. And if it were me, I would say, no, you don't. Don't you remember? I killed a guy. I'm a murderer. I got my my issues. I got my stuff. I got my baggage. I've got all my things that in my mind disqualify me forever thinking that God would want to do something new and exciting with me in my life. But that's how we feel, don't we? God's got a new adventure for someone else. Someone who's holier someone who's more qualified someone you know here's Moses and I love you know I again as a as a speaker I always get a kick out of this I mean what did the children of Israel pray for years and years bring us a speaker not with negotiating ability a leader not with negotiating abilities or a healthy CEO resume just give me somebody who can talk to Pharaoh and they get Moses and what's one of the first things he says well you know I really don't do meetings I kind of stutter. Oh, gee, we prayed for one thing and he can't even measure up. Thus the conversations are, let my people go. No, okay, you know, when he walks away. But God used this guy with an amazing adventure. Now we get into the Moses that we all know and love. The Ten Commandments, Moses. The parting of the Red Sea, Moses. Because he's moved through chapter 4, the second wind in his life, to chapter 5. Service to the glory of God. Service to the glory of God, verses 36 and 37. The Moses who leads his people mightily. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said of the sons of Israel, God shall raise up for you a prophet like me 
from your brethren. So let's be redundant. What's this all been about? That the Moses that you and I all know and love actually comes in about chapter 4 in his five-chapter life. You and I all have a life story that we are unfolding. Some of us are in early chapters. Some of us are in mid-chapters. Some of us are getting close to the end chapter. But the end chapter has not yet been written. And wherever you might be today, you can't be any worse than Moses chapter 3 on the shelf. And God has for you a burning bush, a second wind. Simply asking for your resiliency to hang in there and be open to it. So let me give you a couple things to jot down as we wrap this up. How do you make the idea of a second wind applicable to today? Well, here's one way to think about it. The second wind will occur in the midst of ordinary day-to-day living. The second wind will occur in the midst of ordinary day-to-day living. Let me explain what I mean. You all know your Bible well. You know that we're reading a summary of the story in Acts. Go back and read the full story in Exodus. There is nothing in Acts or in Exodus that even gives a hint that the day of the burning bush started any differently for Moses than any other day. He simply woke up. What are you going to do today, Moses? Well, I'm going to let the sheep out. I'm going to have my brown bag, peanut butter and jelly. And I'm going to read the Jerusalem. It was just like any other day except God showed up. You and I maybe have had an experience like that where it was just a regular Sunday. I love this church. I come to this church every Sunday. But there was that one Sunday where I, I, it was like I heard the voice of God. And my life has never been the same since I heard that message that day. I mean, to me, this is significant. I remember when I was in seminary, I, uh, I was so, you know, zealous but naive. I remember I would sit in my living room at night and pray for a burning bush. And, and I, was, I was like literal. God, I, I literally want a burning bush in my life. I want a burning bush in my life. Well, let's be honest, folks. The, the, the opportunity for a burning bush in my living room is pretty slim. You know, I got, a, I, I got a possible chance around Christmas, but it's not gonna happen. But when we realize that, when you look at a burning bush in Moses' day, the bush was a very normal part of a wilderness. It was the burning that was the supernatural, that God came to the most normal of times. So maybe if you work in an office, maybe your burning bush is a burning bookcase. If you work in a shop, maybe it's the burning bandsaw. You know, if you work in a classroom, maybe it's the burning blackboard. If you're a, a cook, it's, it's the burning blender. You know? But I'm being facetious because, frankly, I've had a, a burning blender experience and, and God was not in that at all. It, it was just ugly all, all, all over the place. But what I'm saying is we need to look for God even in the midst of everyday circumstances. And then one last thing to consider, the second wind will occur by making ourselves available. The second wind will occur by making ourselves available. Here I am, God. I want to be resilient. I want to move on into the additional chapters of my life. 
I want you to give me, if it, if it is what you want, give me a new adventure. Give me a second wind. Let's pray. Lord, will you do that for us today? We know you will. Thank you for the promise of the second wind. That we can be men and women who draw close to you, whatever chapter we may be in our life. And you can have a new adventure for us. For some of us, it's a second chance or a third chance. For others, it's a brand new opportunity. Yet for all of us, we know that as we yield to you and make ourselves available to you, you will look out for us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.